0: Welcome to the hands-on, hands-off podcast where we talk about manual therapy with clinicians, researchers and educators. We are curious manual therapists interested in battling misinformation on both sides. We know manual therapy is not a blanket fix for everything, yet we also appreciate that it can be a valuable tool for many. So please sit back and enjoy the show as we unravel the complexities of who, when, what why, and maybe even how to apply or not apply manual therapy. Here are your hosts, Derek Cluley and Seth Peterson.
1: Welcome to the Duke Centers for Excellence in Manual and Manipulative Therapies podcast. I am your host, Derek Cluley, and I will be joined by Seth Peterson. Today, we are talking to... Chad Cook, who is the director of the Centers for Excellence in Manual Manipulative Therapy here at Duke University. And being that this is our first episode, we figured it was very important to have our founding director on the show so that he could talk about all the things that the Centers for Excellence is all about, including what we're already doing and what also the vision and the future looks like like for the Centers for Excellence in Manual Manipulative Therapy. So sit back, enjoy the show, and thank you for listening in. Well, cool. Uh, yeah, so we've actually been chatting a little bit here. I'm gonna uh, so Seth, Seth, and I getting our first initial kickoff podcast for the hands on, hands off podcast here, and uh, good to be opening it up with a, a special guest that I think we all know pretty well, uh, but I think it's also important that we have Chad Cook on here, basically the I guess, the instigator or the initiator <laughs> of Duke C-Met. Um, and wanted to get that out here first before we start having some other guests on. But Seth and I will be uh, taking on the, the role of co-host uh, going forward here. So uh, I don't know, Seth, you got anything that you want to say to the listeners out here today for, before we get uh, kind
2: of rolling it all? not really i mean we get to interview the brains of this whole operation today so i'm pretty psyched um i mean just as far as chad goes just a person i think everybody in pt knows I, it's kind of funny saying this he's like you know, looking at me right now but he's i think we can all you know think of studies that chad has taken a part of um you know shape pt a lot so this is going to be kind of an interesting discussion and then continue to do so with through Duke, you know, developing this program. So I'm kind of excited to see, you know, what comes of this. And I'm excited to hear the story. I haven't really heard the story. You kind of touched on it a little bit, Derek, but how did this get developed?
1: Well, we'll get to that in a moment. We're gonna gonna grill Chad with a few questions that um, maybe not specific to that, maybe a little bit more fun, but I don't know, maybe, maybe not every PT knows Chad. I don't know about neurodevelopment pediatric PTs. They probably do. Chad's probably got a study that was uh, published on neurodevelopment PEDS, I bet, somewhere (laughs) along the way. I guarantee it. He does. He's smiling right now, and I'm pretty sure he has one.
3: (laughs) Well, I will say this. I just did a neuro podcast. I just did two. So um, I've been exposed somewhat to the neuro folks, uh, but I don't claim to know anything about neuro, and I know less than anything about PEDS. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm sure you'll be on something there pretty soon. All right. So yeah, so we'll get to the Duke CMET um, thing here in a little bit. But before we do that, I mean, Chad's been on a lot of podcasts and, you know, Seth touched on that, that he is a pretty well-known entity in the PT community, especially orthopedic manual physical therapy. I think your influence in that sphere is um, very well-known, uh, very well-appreciated. Uh, as well. I think you've helped move the needle for manual therapy, you and, you know, a few um, impactful researchers in that area. So really do appreciate having you on here. But before we get to that, we're going to ask you a few questions. Uh, and the first one here is, <laughs> if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? One meal. One meal.
3: Well, um, I know that I would eat slightly later than you because we used to compete against uh, against one another who, who ate earlier um, <laughs> at Duke. But so I was in the mountains about three weeks ago. Um, I saw a sign that said, soup of the day, whiskey. And so probably whiskey would be my <laughs> um, food every day because I kind of do that anyway. But if that doesn't qualify I think I'm going with sushi because I think sushi as much as it's an art is as much as it is a food and it's uh it tastes different every time you eat it.
1: You do a lot with sushi Wise too. Wise choice nice. with sushi.
3: Yep. What kind of what whiskey? You
1: put a lot of stuff.
3: I'm a bourbon guy now. I started as a scotch guy, shifted to Irish whiskey and then I'm, I'm gone the opposite direction. Most people go. And then now I'm a bourbon guy, but, um daily drink you know four roses is great um if i want to feel proud of myself that i've done something i do woodford reserve and uh but i don't turn much down
1: (laughs) that's awesome all right uh next question if you could have coffee with any historical figure who would you choose and why
3: coffee with any historical figure all right i've had a question like this before but it wasn't historical. And I always choose my grandfather because he passed away when I was three. And apparently he was a pretty amazing man. And I know my mom and dad speak about him um, with such reverence, Um, but not historical. He was a lead miner. Um, I saw, we were talking about YouTube earlier. I saw a YouTube episode about Joan of Arc and someone who at 17 years of age had so much conviction that they risked their life to do what they felt was right i would love to just sit down and talk to somebody you guys are probably like me i'm more interested in talking to people who sacrifice something or who have really lived through something amazing than a sports figure or a politician or something like that so i'll, I'll say joan of arc
1: that's a good one i'm actually have to go and uh i refresh my history of joan of arc as well too out the to, full disclosure there <laughs> died at 19
3: burned at the stake i mean
1: yeah,
3: yeah. That, that's rough but yeah. two, year, two years of military battles, pretty impressive.
1: Could be a pretty dangerous coffee uh, episode <laughs> there. All right, so last one, and then we'll get to some of the other um, things uh, as well. But I, I think this is a fun question. What occupation, other than PT, would you like to try?
3: So I'd love to be a cycling mechanic because I love cycling. I love you know just the technology that has gone into bicycles over the last 30 years but i'm just lousy at it um I, I mean i can't even i can't even fix a derailleur so I, i'll go um financial analyst because i almost became one in truth i mean after the 1997 Balanced budget act uh and i started studying economics at, and was going to get a certified financial planning degree, I was going to actually shift out of PT and be a financial analyst, which I would have lost all my money because today the market dropped
1: 4%. But you would have made a lot more money before that. So you would have like lost 4% of a lot of money. Sure. That. Sure. That's
3: a good point. <laughs> Chad, is that, is that how you got your MBA? It is. Uh, there there was a plan afoot. Uh, and I've always, you know, my father and I have always dabbled around with stocks and and played the market. And, um, you know, I got an econ PhD and it was very much going to go in that direction. But what was interesting is I found that a lot of the modeling and a lot of the things you learn in econ are applicable toward modeling health. So it was very transferable and, and it was easy to stay in the profession.
2: And I'm curious, what, what made you change your mind and say, nah, I don't want to do that?
3: I started doing research with the, knowledge I gained through the PhD. And at that point in the early 2000s, not very many people were doing a lot of, um, big data studies, observational designs, and it was just, um, it just fit. And then I had an opportunity to go to Duke and Duke really checked the box as far as being a great place to be the PT and to grow in that area. Mm-hmm.
1: That's awesome. Well, you know, I, 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 can't see you being a bicycle mechanic. I am convinced, though, that I, I am terrible at bike mechanic work as well. I'm convinced that they could actually make this stuff a whole lot better, but they just need to continue to employ bike mechanics. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I'm with you there. But finance, I don't know. That's that's an interesting one. That's a cool one. All right. So we mentioned at the top of the show that you know a lot of people know you. Uh, maybe we are being a little assumptive. So just. Can you give our listeners just a little bit of information about yourself, what you do, what you're doing right now, maybe some of the projects that you're working on, that kind of stuff.
3: I'm happy to. Um, So I've been a PT for 32 years, graduated in 90, trained in the eighties. I have a PhD, as I mentioned. Um, I've been in academia about 23 years. The first 10 years of that uh, was as, as a clinician researcher. So I stayed in the clinic for around 20 years, which I think really helped on my research side. I, uh, I have a wife who's also a PT. We got married, essentially we graduated together, got married and uh, I have three boys and uh, my oldest son is, will be turning 29 in October. And then I have a 24 year old who is in med school at the University of North Carolina. And then a 19 year old who's a sophomore in the University of North Carolina. I live in Chapel Hill, which is where the University of North Carolina is. And my wife uh, actually works for the University of North Carolina. So it's very much a UNC family. Um, I uh, I like cycling, as I mentioned. I used to do triathlons when I was younger and where when you could actually do things and not get injured all the time. Um, <laughs> used to run, played baseball in college for a while. Um, I'm a massive introvert. And uh people I think might think I'm standoffish, but I'm just really socially quiet. And uh and it, it's just draining when you're in big conferences and things like that. But um and I think and I think I try to be a nice guy, try to present myself as a um the right way professionally and just as a kind person.
1: You must love to punish yourself because you're at a lot of conferences. <laughs> I was thinking the same <laughs> Book. thing.
3: <laughs> COVID, Covid sure slowed things down for us all. I think yeah. for a while there, it was. Uh, I was meeting myself coming and going. I, w- I mean, I think in one, I went to twenty conferences all over the all over the world. And uh, I I will say I've been to thirty four different countries where I've I've spoken as a keynote or a invited speaker. So you know, I've been very very lucky. Um, been given a lot of opportunities. Have opportunities to meet you know, really just awesome people like you, too, and, you know, people who are doing things for the right reason.
1: It's awesome. Very cool. Well, this gets us to the, the um, kind of a question I think a lot of our listeners would like to hear. I, I, I'm i I'm curious about your journey through manual therapy. I think it's a pretty fascinating, at least what I've heard bits and pieces of it, and I think our listeners would love to hear it as well, because I don't Think anybody uh, really knows that i mean obviously your contributions into manual therapy research are profound um i don't think you took the the route that many do these days um in terms of manual therapy and fellowship training and that kind of thing so can you tell us about your manual therapy professional journey and how you became interested in and actually why you're still interested in it
3: yeah i'm happy to you know i practiced obviously in the early 90s and back then you know, there was such a shortage of PTs that they gave unlimited continuing education and I was an outpatient PT. So I took a lot of courses in manual therapy and I, I basically kicked tires and tried all the different approaches and the takeaway from some of the approaches was not great. You know, I, I didn't see that Monday morning difference in my patient or I had, I had a difficult time applying. What was taught, I think, in, an, you know, in a weekend course or a week-long course, we used to have a lot of those, and then seeing the uh, transferability to the clinic. Um, I think the thing that really solidified it for me is, as I mentioned, I was a triathlete. I had significant knee pain with running. It felt like somebody was stabbing me with an ice pick when I would run. And I went and saw a guy named Steve Janos, who actually studied under Maitland. And Steve Janos was a co-worker. And he said, if you bring me a six pack of beer, I'll take a look at your knee. And I said, I can't beat that. So he actually used some manual therapy techniques I had never seen and then taught me a home exercise program, which would augment the techniques that he did. And in three days, pain gone. And I said, "Okay, this is clinically transferable. So I started taking the Maitland based courses with uh, the late Bob Sprague took some courses with a Chris Showalter who is, you know, pretty active within AOP, Um, started teaching with the MAPS folks, which is the Maitland Australian physiotherapy seminars. I taught with those uh, guys for about 10 years, still involved with them, you know, just they're good, good friends. And um, I think that was the, that was the jump into the pool for me. Um, The reason I'm still interested in it is it's still something that I think makes a difference with patients and, I think we all, if if someone can show me that it doesn't make a difference with the patient, then I will discard it. I'll do that with anything because I don't have a emotional connection to anything we do, but I'm a believer that it makes a difference with selected patients. So that's why I'm so passionate about it.
1: Awesome, thank you. Well, that gets us then to where we're at here with this show today and what we're kind of talking about. And that is is the, the center of excellence in Manual manipulative therapy here at Duke University, and so I wanted to ask you some specific questions about that, especially you as as you as the director of the program. So, you know, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how this program started? I mean, honestly, I I we went from zero to sixty, I think, <laughs> in getting the the CNET program up and running. And I'm just curious, um, you know how you how you ended up getting this all started and what kind of fostered that
3: well i know both of you are on social media seth i see you on social media all the time i don't know how you do it and you know that there's so much misinformation on social media and even at conferences even at a conference that should be manual therapy friendly like i found um, you often have a lot of negativity about manual therapy And then on the opposite side, you have people that are saying you know things that manual therapy does, which are obviously not true. And you know, of these weird, odd philosophies and you know, spirit animals and and nonsense like that. um, we decided to start CMET primarily to reduce misinformation and to be a credible source of information. In other words, give information out that is more truthful. So whether it's supportive. Of a manual therapy approach or not. Um, It needs to be out there in a way that an audience can get to it. It's not baked behind a firewall and then people can actually uh, vet that information themselves and not listen to a one-sided individual. I mean you all are probably like me. I I can't watch the news anymore in the United States because depending on who you watch you're getting very filtered information. You're getting a very one-sided view about something and I didn't want that. I'd want something that was more in the middle, um, that didn't, uh, that allowed me to make the decision myself. And that's really the impetus behind CMET. I, uh, you know, a confluence of things came together. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, what's my legacy going to be, what can I do, you know, and what should I do for the rest of my career? I've only got about seven or eight years left before I retire. And, um, an opportunity to talk to stanley paris and Catherine patla and they have a uh, paris family foundation i talked to them about what our vision was for cmet Uh, they communicated with duke advancement and in a whirlwind derek is just like you said we got it sorted and within a month um, we received funding for five years uh, to put this together and i think since april of this year we've really uh, packaged a lot of material uh, and it's really moving in the, dire- uh, the direction I really like, which is one of the reasons I like this podcast so much. I think it's going to give voice to a lot of really bright people that can, you know, talk on both sides of manual therapy.
1: You know, one thing that I'm always curious about specific specifically to manual therapy and I, what I like about the Duke C-MET and honestly, what I think Seth and I will be doing with the podcast is you know, kind of finding that balance um, between things. Uh, And I always, you know, it it is interesting, I think even with just our general, uh, our, our society, but then also our society within PT, I think you hit something there that was kind of curious that there are those that, you know, are passionate naysayers, and then there are those that are passionate about, you know, something that may not make any sense. And our goal is to hit that listener that probably fits in the middle, and to be honest with you, is probably the majority of the PTs that are practicing there. Uh, what are your, I, what are some of the things that you are planning to do or doing right now with Duke C-Met that, um that is hopefully going to target that that listener that is you know wanting to get that information uh, there?
3: Yeah, thanks for asking. I I think the most important thing is to recognize how people are getting their information now. And if you look at recent studies, very few people are getting information from journal articles. So, you know, the, the tra- traditional sense of writing a paper and hoping that somebody will read it, I'm not sure that's going to work. And, you know, Seth's paper recently in PTJ showed that people get more information from Con Ed that is used in clinical practice than certainly other mechani- mechanisms. So, You know, we want to make sure that we offer some material for con Ed uh, sources as well, since we know that that is going to make a difference to the learner. So we've been putting together infographics, which I think are very transferable, and these are being used right now by clinicians and patients. I've actually seen these infographics being translated to Portuguese and Spanish, which I think is great. I think everybody should translate them to any of the languages that they feel are useful. We're starting living systematic reviews, which are continuously updated systematic reviews. So we don't have to wait every five years for an update. We're going to do a rebump every month or two. And Dr. Sean Riley is actually leading the charge on that. We have something that we had Seth on the other day, which we call shop talk. And whenever we see a, a paper that's really moving the needle in social media or something that is being cited a lot, We bring in the authors and just talk to them about the paper. Where did the idea come from? What was it like? Who who are the co-authors? What did they find? And then you know, a short 30-minute getting the whole skinny about a particular uh, study we think is going to be useful. Derek, one of the things that you are uh, leading the charge on is we're doing something very similar to what you see with Pedro. And we're doing reviews of papers, one-page reviews. That somebody can go in, they're not firewalled, and it basically summarizes what a a study has found and gives you some idea of the risk of bias associated with that. And then we've got this idea about having just a, a running list of studies that are supportive of manual therapy for those who, you know, I've got a soft spot for clinicians. I think it's awfully difficult to be expected to treat eight to 10 hours a day and then read you know, thirty to 40,000 papers a year on low back pain. So we're hoping to find the right articles that we can put out there for clinicians who have limited time so they can read and pull something from that. So it, it's an information dissemination site for sure.
1: I got one more question because I know Seth is, I can see it, he's burning to ask some questions here and I've been hogging the mic here, <laughs> but I'm going to hog it just one more time. You're Look at my chest. Back over to Seth there. It's, <laughs> um, so and you touched on this and I, Who, like, can other people get involved in CMET? I mean, is it something that is like an exclusive membership of who's doing things? Or, you know, are there um, contributions that uh, PTs out there, especially those that are, you know, maybe involved in OMPT, that kind of thing, can can be engaged with?
3: Everybody can get involved. Uh, We are interested. We are crowdsourced. So most of the people that work uh, with us are, it's contribution by faith and because they believe in in the initiative you know i have two i have one individual who's not even a manual therapist but speaks fluent portuguese so she is contributing either on the shop talks or on the twitter handle you know writing things in portuguese i have uh, a good friend nicolas from chile who has contributed um, not only on shop talks but uh, you know he'll get more involved as we go along so We're looking for anybody to contribute um, that is is interested in doing it. Um, I think most people will find that the intentions are very good. And that the fact that we're more in the middle of the lane on where we go with this, we're not going to be talking about crazy things, but we're also not going to just be throwing opinions out there that'll be evidence-based. I think that'll actually be something that most, as you say, most people believe this way anyway. I think it's going to Uh, Check the box for most people.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Seth, sorry, I was hogging that mic. I'm going to
2: turn it over to you now. No, I think, um, you know, you talked about a lot. You hit on a lot of things there, Chad. So the one thing that that I wanted to kind of hear you talk about is this article you wrote about, you wrote one called The Demonization of Manual Therapy, which has got to be one of the top 10 titles I think I've ever read, Um, you list eight demonizations. And can you kind of go one by one, debunking those demonizations of manual therapy? I wonder if you could go through and kind of list what some of your favorites were from that paper?
3: Well, I'll do my best. Um, I I, I will say this. So I wrote the paper in the fall 2020. And I have taken a beating from that paper. And the beating has actually come from the anti-manual therapist and the very pro-manual therapist, which is, I think, extremely interesting. Um, you know, I'm not a person that likes to provoke, provoke things or irritate things or make anybody mad, but my dad told me that, he said, Churchill said, oh, you have enemies, good. That means you're doing something. That means you're standing up for something. So it probably is is that we, we something was done right. I actually made the mistake of Googling demonization of manual therapy and came up on a number of podcasts that people had done specifically on that topic. So, you know, it's it's kind of crazy. I've, done, I've had, you know, 330 publications and this little German paper, um, it really, I think, uh, struck a chord with a lot of people. There were eight things, I think, you know, there were a couple things in there. One of them was, is that, there's outdated philosophies that are used by many manual therapists. And there are all these assumptions made that, you know, manual therapy works because of these reasons, and you have to do manual therapy a particular way. And we've all been in those courses where it's very prescriptive and uh, challenging. And and this just isn't the truth. The science hasn't held that up. So that is actually not a myth. Um, that is truthful. I think that we need to move on from that and Manual therapy, I think, can actually be for the masses. It can be done a lot easier. And it's probably there's a great question in there about how much time needs to be dedicated to the technique application and how much needs to go toward the, the thinking piece. Um, one of the things I talked about is that, you know, it takes a manual therapy takes a hit because there's a claim that you can't identify candidates for care. But I think, as you all know, we can't identify candidates for care for anything uh, for cognitive behavioral therapy for surgery. I mean, how would you like, how'd you like to have that discussion with your physician? Is it, am I a good candidate for this? Oh, we don't know. Um, we, we haven't been able to model that and decide, but we're in the same boat as just about everybody with respect to that. So that isn't just a manual therapy thing. That's unfortunately, that's a rehab thing. Uh, that's where we are with orthopedics. Uh, another one, uh, you know, out of the eight, I think the piece that it leads to addiction. Uh, the, the conversation I had in the paper was, that's not that's poor management of a, a patient's condition. That's not a manual therapy thing. Um, I have not seen a single study that says that manual therapy leads to addiction. That you have to go back and keep getting you know, manual therapy sessions. The cost alone, I think, is probably prohibitive of that. But Um, haven't seen anything in the literature in that particular area. We know that that is the case with medications and and other things and other lower cost items. Um, But I would say it's a management issue. And by the way, I'm, you know, I'm privy to large data sets of patient management. I'm seeing a lot of 30 to 50 episodes of exercise that is poor management too. Obviously that's not working in that patient's particular case. So, We could argue the same throughout all the different interventions we've done. Seth, I've seen you tweet a concern you've had about basically patients who come in and they're stuffed in a booth somewhere and they're exercising by themselves. That's not PT. That's, that's bad management. And I would argue that these people who say that, that it leads to addiction, they're talking about poor management, not, not manual therapy.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I think that was probably one that that hit home with me that that I liked was this this idea that manual therapy robs people of self-efficacy is like yeah I mean if you if you looked at self-efficacy in the research which I've done for one of the papers that we're working on it's like it's so complex and it's context specific and the idea that you know you're gonna move someone's knee you know and do a joint lobe and take away self-efficacy from them it's just so far away. I think from the truth, but it,
3: that's pretty uh, magnanimous. If you can do that, um, you know, I talked to Frank Keefe about self-efficacy and he said, you can improve self-efficacy. There's lots of evidence related to that, but as far as removing self-efficacy, there's a vacuum there. So I'm, I'm in agreement with you, Seth.
2: Yeah. So, and you brought up, the first thing you brought up actually is this, this demonization about you know, therapy techniques based on outdated philosophies. Why do you think that's been such a hard thing for, for some manual therapists to shape?
3: I think a lot, I think there are two things when I think about this. Um, think of the commitment that they put into these fellowship programs and to learn a particular philosophy. I mean, they're fairly indoctrinated into these, to the point where you are, you are broken down and then built up and you are built up in this philosophy. And, and I've talked on podcasts before that, you know, I had my Maitland blinders on every time that I addressed a patient, regardless of what, you know, pain phenotype that patient was, I was treating them with a kind of a similar framework. And it took a, a while for me to divorce myself from managing people the same way. I read a really interesting, it was an fMRI paper, and they were actually looking at political uh viewpoints and emotions and they were finding that whenever you know the areas that would light up around emotion would, would you could light the same things up with political viewpoints and i see people really hanging on to their philosophies very similarly to how they really get focused on a political party and even though the They don't like the people in that party. They don't like the direction that party's going. They don't like the performance of that party. They are steadfastly supportive of that party and will never back down. I see the same thing, I think, in philosophy of manual therapy. People just, they'll fight to death, even though I think in their mind they know that there's probably a gap there um, and they need to clean a little house.
2: Yeah, I think we all need to kind of work on keeping an open mind. Especially as clinicians, you see all this stuff in the clinic. And really, as a clinician, it can be tough when, you know, you make observations in the clinic and you think something works. And then a study comes out and it says, ah, you know what, actually, the effects that maybe I, I, not to discount what you saw with that individual patient, but the effects maybe in RCTs, for example, aren't that promising, uh, so why do you think that is? Do you have a sense for that? And maybe what researchers need to do in the future?
3: I do. Um, I'm going to speak about this at, um, at a conference in Belgium. And I think it's really important because it's basically deconstructing what our research studies actually tell us. I mean, an RCT tell us if it tells us if our treatment has efficacy or effectiveness and or if it's snake oil, Right. So it, it tells us if if this particular exercise is better than whatever the comparator is. and You know, let's say the comparator is um, wait and see, or maybe it's a placebo exercise approach. It basically gives us, does this have a therapeutic effect? I think the real challenge is when we start comparing two things that have a therapeutic effect. So maybe exercise versus manual therapy, and then what we end up with is no difference between the two group. I believe there's a lot of misinterpretation where people say, well, there's not a difference between those two groups, so they must not have an effect. Well, they don't have a superior effect in that in that particular case. And we've seen a lot of that uh, being misinterpreted on social media or or otherwise. The other thing is what you touched on is we know because of different phenotypes that even with efficacious treatments, even with pharmacological treatments, people respond differently to interventions. And we make this assumption that exercise is going to be this golden intervention across the board, but in reality, exercise isn't going to work for a subset of the population. Manual therapy doesn't work for a subset of the population. So for that particular patient in front of you, they may or may not actually benefit from the treatment that does a little better in the RCT. And they may benefit from the other treatment. And we've got a pretty wide berth in our outcomes measures. They are fairly variable. So we have a pretty wide spread. I have a slide of 24-month outcomes for 12,000 individuals who received surgery for low back pain. And it's an ODI slide. And we see Nearly 100% improvements to zero percent improvements, and then a huge spread across that whole spectrum. So this is a, a, a fairly homogeneous intervention choice, and we see massive variation on how the patients respond to the. We see the same thing in rehab, and I think we we have a hard time teasing that out as clinicians when we do one on one care. But in reality, I'm not surprised that we see variability in our patients' response. Sorry, long winded answer.
1: I'm going to jump in and just ask a quick question here. And it may um, go nicely in this time here. But, uh, and it, because just kind of facilitated just something that I was thinking about, you know, obviously, manual therapy has a lot of, I guess, definitions or, you know, thoughts about what that is. And I'm just curious, you know, because manual therapy, I think is sometimes ill-defined as, you know, anything that is just a technique sort of approach versus I think there's a lot more to manual therapy. And this is, this may be a hard question to answer, but if you were First of all, would you say that we sometimes have a little bit of an identity crisis when it comes to manual therapy, especially as a, as a general um, definition, and then if you could somewhat define what manual therapy is, how would, how would you define that?
3: So, I mean, this is very timely. I'm on a a task force by AOM, and we are defining what OMPT practice is. Um, you know, what is orthopedic manual physical therapy? I agree with you, Derek. It's not just using techniques. Um, Manual therapy techniques are they're fruitless by themselves. There's a lot more behind that. And that's the reasoning process. That's the communication with the patient. That's how you frame what you're doing with the patient and how you're using your hands to assist in that examination process. So I would argue that orthopedic manual physical therapy is probably 90% just being a really good PT, and then 10% incorporating the use of hands in either the examination or the treatment. Now, I've gone a step further, and I do think that as a profession, we need to take a stand because if you go to Wikipedia and you look up manual therapy, you will get all kinds of fringe approaches that sometimes don't even involve putting hands on patients. And, and things like cranial sacral therapy which you do put your hands on patients but they're it's built on faulty tenets so i do think we need to take it a step further and that the the use of the manual therapy techniques should be grounded in theoretical mechanisms that we know will that have been studied previously not based on some philosophies that are so out there that you know, it doesn't do any of us any good um, to, to have these things called manual therapy. So do we have an identity crisis? Absolutely. Uh, should we clean up the house a little bit and get rid of that, some of that? Well, I think it should be distanced. We should distance ourselves from some of those things. And I think you're starting to, to see that. Um, is manual therapy just some knucklehead in a study that uses one technique one time and compares that against something else? It is not. And that's a fidelity issue. And so I I, you know, I I, really feel strongly about this, that you need, to, it, just like exercise isn't having somebody do 10 straight leg raises and then comparing that against something else. You do one set, one visit. That's not exercise. But you see a lot of manual therapy studies set up that way.
1: I heard a story once, and I don't know if it was you that told me this or if it was one of your former students at Duke that told me this and maybe it's not an actual true story, but we'll see. <laughs> um, you, I think it was your you had one of your sons come in um, to class and demonstrate like a thoracic technique or something and ask the students, is this manual therapy? And of course the students all said yes. <laughs> And you said no. And so I actually really appreciate that. I don't know who I heard that from. I don't know if I heard directly from you or if it was a former student, but I've, I've actually kind of you know, used that story by proxy uh, because I think it's pretty valuable. Um, uh, kind of what you just said there, what the difference is between manual therapy and, and what it's not.
3: I, I taught him how to do a, what's called a Maitland screw, uh, thoracic extension thrust. He was three and he could typically get an audible with the technique. He was three um, said, years you know, old it, at this point. He was three years old. Yeah. I have a picture of it that I'll try to dig out for y'all. But it, he's got this big smile as, as he's doing the minute. But uh, no, that's a true story.
1: That's awesome. That's fantastic. I mean, that, that, that kind of nails it right there, too, though. So, yeah, thank you.
2: I have a three year old, so I think I'm going to go home and try and teach him this. It's my There you project go. For <laughs> the There's probably something wrong with that. <laughs> that should be our logo for this podcast. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, I love that story. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things you're pointing out, Reiki is an example of something where, you know, the hands physically don't contact the body. And it's interesting because in the history of manual therapy, it kind of came from lay people and healers and then kind of progressed. There's this, this interesting history of manual therapy. I think Earl Petman uh, authored in, in JMMT that I love reading. Uh, so I think this, and we can go so many different directions, but but one of the things I wanted to touch base on, Chad, is, is not only manual therapy, but you've written a lot about clinical diagnostic testing and red flags. Um, other countries have kind of been developing this advanced practice role for physical therapists. And it's kind of interesting because in the U.S., um, in the civilian setting, at least, it's kind of manual therapists fellowship trained manual therapists are kind of the most analogous to that so like they do better on you know red flag yellow flag recognition adhering to practice guidelines comfort ordering imaging managing opioid overuse the, the list goes on so i wonder if you could chat about kind of like our system and what you might think excellence in manual therapy represents in the states
3: So I like the way you outlined that. Um, I'm in agreement, by the way, that if there was an analogous to an advanced practice that you see in Canada or some of the other countries or Great Britain, um, I would say that it is the fellowship trained manual therapist. And I think there's a misperception that during fellowship training, they're learning how to do 700 different ways to manipulate somebody. And then they're skipping everything else. A fellowship curriculum is probably 90 percent you know, how do you do a really good examination? How do you um, put together an appropriate treatment program? How do you identify red flags and yellow flags? How do you communicate with a patient? How do you understand pain and be able to phenotype that? That's, to my understanding, that's what really good manual physical therapists in the United States do. And that is the same thing you see done by other advanced practitioners. I think it's interesting that it's often the manual therapy fellowship trained individuals that are dropped in ED clinics when they're looking for PTs to be placed in advanced settings such as that. They often do clinic with the physicians because they tend to have very advanced examination skills. So, you know, in my in my experience, it, it is our form of advanced practice. And I think if you would ask anybody who is fellowship trained, they sunk a lot of effort into their training. And they learned a lot. I, I, you know, I believe in residencies. I believe in fellowships. I think it's, you know, it's learning on steroids. And, and I think that, that I, I really believe that is our advanced practitioners in the United States.
2: Yeah, I know we spent a lot of time on that stuff in the fellowship that I went through. Uh, what was your experience, Derek?
1: Yes, very much so. <laughs> Didn't learn a lot of manual therapy. Um, if manual therapy is being described as a technique, um, as in, as a, you know, we did do a lot. I mean, We definitely had a lot of reps and sets because I think there's still some value in that. I think there's still some value in getting some good fidelity and getting the, those sorts of things. I think an overemphasis on it is uh, where you get to a fault. So I think that there's the balance between that. Uh, but I learned um, through my fellowship training program um, all about the examination skills, identification of who is going to be the the most appropriate responder, at least as a clinical sense from there. Um, Learning how to understand the evidence and the use of the evidence, how to employ that uh, with manual therapy. Um, You know, I I always say that the, uh, you know, Chad, your history is kind of similar to mine. I went through a lot of um, con ed. I think those of us that graduated before the era of residency and fellowship was really hot. Uh, We just did a lot of con ed. And so I took a lot and got a lot of certifications of manual therapy and i just did a lot of manual therapy a lot of like i mean i, I swear i think that i had like but in medicare i had 38 minutes right because then you get what three units or four units or something like this <laughs> 38 minutes of just you know mobilizing somebody's back and this and that and maybe a scapula here and there or something i don't know just kind of get get, get things moving around and I, no reasoning to it at all um until i went through fellowship training and then that kind of really um uh, almost removed a lot of the manual therapy that i did because i i spent more time thinking about who were going to respond and not just manual therapy though i think like you said chad um, even my exercise uh, interventions got a lot better because of my manual my manual therapy training all of the things that i would employ got a whole lot better because i thought a lot more critically post fellowship training i don't know how you make that happen among the more populous but um I, I definitely felt that way
3: you know what i uh, one of the the greatest benefits of that too is I think your communication gets really, really good, and not, you learn how to talk to an individual in a way that's meaningful to them and where they actually get something from that. And one of the way, one of the reasons you do that is you bond with the patient, and you know, not with to stay away from getting you know into the whole touch is therapeutic and that sort of thing. It is, by the way, there's heaps of research that supports that. But just that therapeutic bond that you create with your patient as a manual therapist, there's there's a trust. There's a therapeutic alliance there. And I think that really helps build that communication piece. That, by the way, is one of the eight pieces of that um, demonization paper. There was a claim that communicate that manual therapists do manual therapy because they can't communicate. And um, I, I completely disagree with that. I actually think the manual therapists, my experience, the manual therapists are the ones that... They really understand pain, they understand the patient's distress, and they understand how to communicate um, better than a lot of other people that I've seen that haven't had that experience.
2: Yeah. Great point. I think one of the best chapters in communication ever written was written by a manual therapist, Jeff Maitland's communication chapters is uh, still, I think one of the things I like to cite for communication and physical therapy. Yeah, he was, he was great. He was a genius, clinical genius. So, you know, clinical reasoning is this concept that really started to mature around that time. I mean, since we brought up Jeff Maitland, around that time in physical therapy, and it's still kind of something that's taught mostly in, you know, fellowship training. Some residency programs have some clinical reasoning tied in there. Um, And I know there's some chatter in academia about, you know, integrating clinical reasoning a little bit more in the DPT curriculum. Why do you think that is Chad? And why is it, what, what's going on there?
3: I think, well, firstly, I think it's really hard to teach clinical reasoning and you all have probably taken courses on clinical reasoning. It is like watching paint dry, um, you know, learning about metacognition and, and all these things. To me, that's really rough. I think in the, you know, in a sense what clinical reasoning is, is pattern recognition, and then learning from mentors and really having the chance to test your theories and your actions out with someone who's been there before with someone you can bounce ideas off of and growing from that you know i i don't think i don't think bar- buying mark jones book and reading about clinical reasoning is going to necessarily make you better at clinical reasoning i do think working around people that are smart and experienced and really talented and are doing things for the right reasons, I think there's where you improve your clinical reasoning. I think it's hard to do in a school setting um, because I think a lot of clinical reasoning requires that repetition and requires exposure. So I think it's tough. I, I think if the best thing that we can do to our new learners is frame what really needs to be done for successful clinical reasoning and then also talk about those barriers On your own end your personal barriers that might prevent you from improving
1: yeah you know i uh i always look back at my mentorship hours that i was required to have during fellowship training and i don't think i got a whole lot of mentorship about where to put my hand where to you know what what level it should be at and what grade i should be at and i'm at the wrong grade it really wasn't that it was actually just a ton of communication to the point that it was almost painful (laughs) to the point that I would, I traveled out to do my, um, my mentoring hours with a a clinician that had great communication skills. And I remember at the time I was kind of, you know, poor, I was paying for fellowship training and i go back to my best Western hotel, (laughs) almost crying at night because man, I just got like, you know, just bombarded with my lack of ability in communication. And, uh, or at least that's how I perceived it to be. And then I grew from that though. You know that was my manual therapy fellowship training was a lot of a lot of that which i think you know is uh, like you said uh the biggest one of the bigger differences between that type of a training um, that you can get anywhere else um i am going to i know we could talk we could talk chad forever uh, and Chad's got places to go. I've got some kids that are going to be coming home after uh, a, a running activity, and I'm pretty sure that it's going to cause my dog to bark and all kinds of noise and that chatter. So I'm going to shut us down, but I bet you at some point we'll have Chad back on the show and continue a conversation down the line. Um, But going forward, we're gonna have a lot of guests on here um, with uh, talks about manual therapy, and I think Chad hit the nail on the head. Hands on, hands off, trying to find the right balance between this. I think we're part of that dissemination process as well. Before we do that, uh, before we close off, I gotta ask you a couple other quick questions here. Uh, And this is kind of a big one. what do you, and you already talked about retirement. So this is going to be from the lens of you sitting, um, I don't know where you want to retire, beach or mountain or wherever you end up. Um, mountain. spending your Mountains. I'm a mountain person too. Uh, so it, what do you hope that the physical therapy profession looks like 10 years from now? I know it's a big question, but just give me a couple of thoughts.
3: So I hope it's more fluid. Uh, I hope the patient's ability to go to a PT and, just their thought process when it when it comes to an injury allows, you know, well, the first person I should see is a PT, very similarly to how it is in New Zealand and Australia. They don't even think about going to the primary care physician. They think about going to a PT. So I, I hope it migrates toward that. And on the other end, I hope that we, instead of being a profession that sits and waits for people to come to us, we continue to integrate into wellness and just general health and understanding the things that lead to decline in a patient's um, lifestyle, disability, pain, and jump and be in the front of those. Uh, so I hope something like that occurs, that the essentially the lines will blur so that patients and PTs are working together instead of one has to go to the other uh, so vividly, like it is right now.
1: I'd like like to see that as well. I think a lot of people would support that here, at least especially in the United States and other countries as well too. Seth, do you have anything that you want to ask Chad before we uh, let him off the hook?
2: Not really. I think I'm going to get your tips for how to teach a three-year-old thoracic manipulation after this. (laughs) Well, that that's pretty has
1: easy. <laughs> I missed the boat on that one. I don't, I'm pretty sure that my kids weren't talented enough to learn that. I, I wouldn't even try not even now, but they're 10 and 12. But uh, so Chad, where can our listeners, um, I'm pretty sure a lot of them already know, but uh, give you a chance to um, uh, spout it out here. Where can they find you on social media, that kind of thing?
3: Well, uh, I am on Twitter. I'm at Chad cook PT. And um, I, I, Mostly tweet out. I don't interact as much. Um, I've been uh, the caustic nature of Twitter. I've been kind of backed off a little bit from that a little. Um, our website for CMET is certainly the Center of Excellence, the, the Duke Center of Excellence in Manual and Manipulative Therapy. So they can find materials from all of us on that particular website. And I also am one of the PIs of an NIH U24 called Forcenet. And ForceNet is a $3 million grant we received recently to promote mechanisms of manual therapy. We will be giving out grants. Our website will probably go live tomorrow. So individuals can actually become a member of ForceNet, and we'll send them information about how to get grants from us, and then also additional training materials. So I I think those are pretty good spots to start.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much chad for your time i know your time is uh, precious but really do appreciate you jumping on the show here and uh until next time we'll uh we'll catch y'all later
0: thank you for listening to the hands-on hands-off podcast be sure to visit the duke CMET, that's c-e-m-m-t website for more resources and materials that's sites.duke.edu cmet. and remember please subscribe to our podcast.